Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Today on the program, I'll talk to Chicago artist Miriam Tagavi about her interest in language and her new exhibit at the Museum of Contemporary Art. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a new intimate production of The Band's Visit. Later in the show, I'll talk to the director of a documentary that profiles a forgotten black television pioneer. And we'll hear about a Chicago nonprofit's efforts to inject some resources into the local arts sector. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Chicago-based artist Miriam Tagavi has always been interested in language and how it shapes people's perceptions. She's continuing her exploration of linguistic systems with a new exhibit at the Museum of Contemporary Art. My artwork is very much informed by my early experience of migration as it related to language. I caught up with Tagavi to talk about her new work, which is on display in the MCA's latest Chicago Works exhibit. Originally from Iran, Tagavi immigrated to Canada as a teenager. When I moved to Vancouver when I was 15, I had this sudden realization that I am trying to find myself in a new language that I don't know too much about. Even though my English was decent, it was okay, but I felt alienated by the language. So that early experience, I think, has been really important in shaping my relationship to language and also thinking about how language shapes our perception. So in my work, I do use uh, letter forms and words and I have done a series of work whether it's performance or painting or installation where I try to abstract the language and detach language from its function which is meaning making and see what I'm left with and what does that elicit in myself and the viewers. Tagavi first came to Chicago to study at the School of the Art Institute. Now she's happy to call the city home. Chicago has a really great art scene. Um, There's a very strong sense of community. And I have tapped into the history of the city, its geography. Lake Michigan is a very important part of my connection to the city. And yeah, I, I like living in Chicago. Did I read that you get up pre-dawn and watch watch the sunrise over the lake? Yes, especially during the, you know, less cold seasons. Okay. <laughs> I go by the lake, I watch the sunrise. Though I do that throughout the year, but in the summer and in fall, part of spring, I also jump in the lake and swim. There's a very strong community of swimmers at the Promontory Point in Hyde Park. So that is also a really important um, draw because I know whenever I go around dawn, someone will be there. 
there are some committed swimmers at the point, so it motivates me to join them too. In recent years, Tagavi has taken inspiration for her work from the Islamic occult, calligraphy, and talismans. When the MCA reached out with this Chicago Works invite, she already had an idea in mind that was related to a specific aspect of Persian language. When I was approached by the museum, I was already working on an exhibition. So I had really narrowed down my focus on language and linguistic forms to one element um, when I was preparing my previous show. And that carried on into this exhibition as well, though I was able to imagine different encounters with the form as it goes for, you know, having an architectural intervention or having a painting or having a sculpture. So there was the seed for it was planted when I was developing that previous exhibition. So when you talk about this single element that you already had in mind, you're referring to this symbol or this method of dotting a letter in Farsi? Exactly. So I was um, using this element for my previous show. I was using what is called a nokte, which can be loosely translated to a point or dot, which is a the most essential diacritic when it comes to both Persian and Arabic languages. And it basically determines the pronunciation of the letter forms. For example, the same letter form, depending on the number of the noktes above or below them, could make six different sounds. This particular one that I'm thinking about could sound like be, ne, te, ye, pe, se. So this is how important uh, the nokte is when it comes to these two languages. So I was working with this as my building block. And, but the form that I was borrowing, you know, the nokte in your everyday handwriting or even um, typography generally appears in a circular form. But in the, uh, in the exhibition, you see that it is a diamond shape with a curved angle. And the reason that I borrowed this form is because this is how a nokte appears in calligraphy. So in Persian and Arabic calligraphy, you use a, a reed pen or a bamboo pen, and the tip of it is very carefully and precisely um, sharpened so you get this tip that has an angle with that tip when you draw a nokte it gives you a diamond shape might be a bit hard to imagine it but in calligraphy it also serves this additional function that it becomes the unit a diamond shape is a unit by which they measure the proportions of the letter forms and the composition and all the relations within that page. And I was really interested in that aspect of it in terms of it giving us a unit by which one measures the perfection of relations. That's why this is how it appears in the exhibition even though in the way that I am using it, 
it is devoid of the original context, mm -hmm. whether it is, you know, in the way that it's making the pronunciation or in this use in calligraphy, and it's taken into new environment. You see it as a cutout into the wall of the museum that then gives you a whole other view inside the wall where it's used as these like fragmented lines on the paintings or it appears as these cuts on the prisms. So in all these different iterations, you see the nocte, but it is a means to experiencing its materiality and at different scales. Visitors entering the exhibit might notice three diamond-shaped cutouts in the wall right as they walk in. Upon closer examination, you can look through the cutouts and see a mirrored prism. Right when I walked in, I saw the, the cutouts, but I kind of walked right by. But when I, I came back and looked in, but are you thinking some people are just going to like walk by those? 100%, yes. I think, yeah, in a way, these dots are, in a way, these noctas are meant to be kind of optical whispers in a way that you could miss them, but you have multiple opportunities to see it because there are three different cutouts on three different walls. So yes, I mean, people might miss it, but there are opportunities to, to find it again. Something else visitors might notice upon entering Tagabi's exhibit is the low lighting. That's by design. I mean, in the exhibition, light is absolutely crucial in what you see, how you see it. And I had to control, or we had to control, the, the amount of light that you receive for the pieces, especially that are inside the wall, right? Because we had to control how bright or how dim it is so it's visible enough, but it's not too bright. So there was a lot of thinking and uh, experimentation that went into that. And keeping the exhibition dim, for me, allows for the space to be more quiet. And therefore, you're able to focus on these optical experiences. So this show is so much about the optical experience. You know, there are moments where you are encountering optical illusion where you can see infinite number of the nocte inside these prisms. And for those to work out well, we had to um, figure out the right amount of light and the brightness. So it's not too dim or it's not too bright. And the same logic is true for the other pieces in the exhibition because the exhibition is so much focused on your optical encounters with the artworks and how you navigate your body within the space i wanted to uh, make sure that the lighting is allowing for that kind of focus to happen sure. the mca's bana katan curated the exhibit which she views as an exciting next step for Tagavi. A lot of artists that do Chicago Works shows, um, they're in their city, they're among their peers. Uh, a lot of the, their older work has already been seen in the city. Um, and so they're, 
they often, not everybody, want to show something um, new that they've been working on, which makes it for a very exciting series because you see a lot of the in-progress ideas. They're almost like a fresh idea that, that you know, like Maryam previously she was very much working on the uh, slightly more esoteric um, sigil side of the occult practices in Islam. And this show is much more poetic. It's much more abstract. And so you actually get to see a shift in an artist. You thought you knew what you were going to see. It's still very Maryam, but it has this like shift. Miriam Tagavi's Chicago Works exhibit is on display at the Museum of Contemporary Art through July 14th. Go to mcachicago.org for more info. Sunrise, sunrise, looks like morning in your eyes. But the clocks and a quick reminder, if you listen to the arts section on WDCB, thank you. Make sure to Check out the show's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. That's theartsection.org. You are listening to the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. Joining me now remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. It's hard to believe it's been almost six years since the band's visit had its huge night at the 2018 Tony Awards ceremony. The musical, with music and lyrics by David Yazbek and book by Itamar Moses, won 10 Tonys, including Best Musical that night. The band referenced in the title is an Egyptian police band that ends up stranded in a small Israeli town because of a mix-up at the bus station. The musical enjoyed great success on Broadway, then went on a national tour, which included a Chicago stop in 2019. Now Glencoe-based Writers Theater is presenting a more intimate production of the Feel Good Musical. Carrie, we'll start with you, and I believe you saw this on Broadway, so interested to hear how that bigger production compares with this more intimate one at Writers' Theater. I saw it on Broadway, where I should say it was directed by my old Columbia College uh, colleague, David Cromer, who did, in fact, win a Tony for directing. And I think, Jonathan, you and I were both at a meeting right around the time of that opening of the American Theater Critics Association in New York, yeah, where the both- creative team gave but us some background on on the show before you know before they knew that they were going to be winning 10 Tony awards certainly and then i did see the tour as well the all too short tour i will say this is a show that i've been longing to see in a smaller more intimate chicago based production so i'm very happy for that reason alone that writers theater is doing it of course they could not have known when they scheduled this you know over well over a year ago I would believe, or at least a year ago, that the situation in the Middle East would be as fraught and and uh, heartbreaking as it is right now. Um, I should emphasize, this is not a musical, nor was the film, the 2007 film, Israeli film, that's based on, in any way 
about politics. This is very much just the personal. The story, as you mentioned, Gary, is an Egyptian band ends up in the wrong town in Israel. They've, they've been uh, booked to play the Arab Cultural Center in the city of Petatikva, which is a real city. For the purposes of the of the story, they end up in the, the dreary Israeli town of Bet Hatikva, which is not a real place, as I understand. <laughs> Very different, not much going on. The roller rink is about the, the greatest uh, excitement that anybody there has. But over the course of one night, because they can't get a bus out until, you know, the next morning, the musicians and the people of the town, the Israelis and the Egyptians, they just start connecting with each other over music, over stories of their lives, over some shared cultural references. Um, and it's interesting because at the very top, uh, they say, you know, there, this is a story that you probably didn't hear very much about. It wasn't very important. So it sort of, you know, inoculates you against the idea that it's going to be about big ideas or big political controversies or big revelations. To me, that is absolutely the reason I love this show. I think it is about just the small ways that people connect. The, the moment, you know, we, we unpeel ourselves often in these small moments, and sometimes it's easier to do that with people that you know you probably won't see again. I think that this production, which is directed by Ziali Khan, is, is really lovely. I think there is room for it to grow, but I think it's exactly the right approach to this show. I think it works much better in this setting, for example, in this sort of three, you know, sort of almost in the round, sort of, you know, very, uh, very intimate staging that Riders has, and it did for me on a proscenium. Uh, Jonathan, I'd love to know what your thoughts are, because I know you've well, seen it as well. We both saw the Broadway production, uh, uh, and we both saw the touring production, so this is the third time out for both of us. Right. Uh, the band's visit has a large and generous heart. It's intimate and personal. It's a musical without production numbers or a big chorus. Uh, and uh, as noted, it most definitely is a show with a message for this particular moment in time. As you noted, this uh, little Egyptian uh, uh, police band is in the wrong town. They're stuck there because there's no bus out till the next morning. So the locals, led by the free-spirited Dina, take the Egyptians in for the night. And that's the whole story. <laughs> but by the time the band leaves the next day, you know everything about everyone. It's mm -hmm. not, as you said, this is not a show about politics or nationality nor about religion. It's about human connections and shared emotions, which are often, in these particular characters, often repressed. At the yeah. center is an almost love story between 30-something Dina, who is a former dancer apparently abandoned by her husband, and Tufik, the dignified, very formally correct uh, officer uh, who is the band leader. And around them swirl other townsfolk and the band members themselves, particularly a would-be composer who plays the clarinet and a very flirtatious young trumpeter. You know, the Broadway production, Carrie, I think uh, made the band's visit seem simple. But this writer's theater production really reveals how complex the yes. show really is. You know, it requires a cast, to begin with, it requires a cast of actors and singers who all double as, music, as musicians as well. They all play musical instruments uh, uh, on stage. And the fact that the director, Zia Ali Khan, and the show's two music directors have been able to cast 
the show successfully is a small miracle all by itself. And the cast is talented and affable and convincing. Um, I, I do want to say, because you, you, you say you like this staging, and I found the staging a bit more problematic than the performances, because the band's visit must shift seamlessly between seven or eight different locations in this small little desert community. And that's actually easier to do on a traditional proscenium arch stage where you can fly scenery up and down and have big wings and you can move, you know, uh, uh, scenery pieces on and off. It's easier to do there than on Writers Theater, which has a very open thrust stage. So the director, Ali Khan, and the scenic designer, Afsun Pajufar, have gone the path of minimalism. And for me, the result is that some locales really are not visually defined at all, and the little towns seem to be crumbling rather than merely dry and dusty. <laughs> so that was, that was my reaction. But beyond that, maybe everything is, 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 is good, I think. Yeah. You know, Ali Khan understands the show's structure very well. It runs just 95 minutes without an intermission, but it still has two halves. And I don't know if you notice this, Carrie, or not, but the first 50 minutes... 55 minutes, are all about introducing the characters and situations, and after a while it starts to grow, grow dull. But in a single song, composer David Yazbek and the book writer Itamar Moses change everything. And the scene is at the roller skating ring that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. Gary, where the flirty young trumpeter takes the local nerd boy under his wing and shows him how to connect with a girl. Now, this could be a coarse moment, but it's not. It's tender, and the, uh, the young trumpet player is brotherly, and uh, it's played by Armand Akbari, who has a wonderful, sweet voice. And this one song, this one moment, opens up the show's heart. And from that moment on, the band's visit is all heart. I do feel like the key relationship, or the almost love story, as you referenced it, Jonathan, between Tufik the uh, the older band leader and Dina, the sort of free spirited cafe owner, played here by Ramba Carter and uh, Sophie Midorsky. You know, the Broadway cast was Tony Shalhoub and Katrina Lang, who both won awards for their performances. It felt a little overly restrained to me, at least at the performance that I saw. Um, I felt like there were moments that a little bit more could have been revealed. Perhaps that is also a product of it being more up close and intimate in this particular staging. But I have a feeling, too, that that's something that will deepen over the course of the show. One thing I did appreciate, and I understand what you're saying about the perhaps some of the awkwardness in moving, you know, the, 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 yeah. the scenes off and on, but I did like that the musicians and the other characters were right there next to us. You know, I had a couple, I had somebody playing violin and drum right next to me on opening night. Do you really do feel like we are all bearing witness to this world? We're bearing witness to the small moments of pain, to the small moments of joy, uh, you know, one moment that I've always found really lovely in this show is when the clarinetist, uh, who is staying with a couple that is clearly having marital problems, they have a child, you know, the husband's been out of work. I mean, it's a very universal, relatable sort of situation for any marriage that's kind of hit a rocky patch. And the baby, we, we don't actually see a real baby, obviously, but there's a, a bassinet, the child is crying, and the Egyptian clarinetist just sort of quietly plays a tune and the child goes to sleep you know and earlier they've been talking to him about this concerto that he's written 
but he hasn't written. It's an unwritten concerto. What we hear is lovely, but it's sort of thwarted, and you get the sense this man's never going to finish his concerto. But you know what? His music still counts. His music has a gift, and his music soothes this baby. So I think that's a beautiful encapsulation of what this story is about. You may not do big things in your life, but you will do good things, and you will connect with good people if you're just open-hearted and willing to go on the journey, even if it takes you to a dreary slash crumbling town. You know, it's funny. I just wanted to throw it as an aside. I saw this in New York with friends that I used to stay with every time I go to New York, and usually as a gift, you know, for them letting me, you know, bunk in with them, I would take them to a show. And my friend, who I've known for many years, reminded me that she had a very similar situation. She went to Israel in the 90s. Her, as she put it, her bat mitzvah Hebrew did not stand her in as good of stead as she would have liked. And she, too, got on the bus to the wrong town and was trapped overnight. But she said, you know, I didn't have lovely Egyptian musicians following me around all night <laughs> playing the oud and the, you know, and clarinet. That would have made it a much more enjoyable experience. And I had completely forgotten that. So, you know, we may... I know someone that it happened to. But yeah, I agree with you. The music direction is lovely. Um, and I honestly think that this is a great way to experience this musical as people have not had the chance. And of course, the, the tour here, I think, was just maybe a week. So that really wasn't much time. And it hasn't come around since. So uh, I think they've extended to March 24th at Riders. If you can get a ticket, I don't think you'll be disappointed. You know, you know, the show you know, projects a quiet message of harmony between Muslims and Jews, though it is not about religion. I don't think either religion is specifically mentioned at all. No, but it really. is a quiet, understated message that is desperately needed right now. So this show is immensely welcome, and it's an immensely warm and big-hearted show. Writers Theater's The Band's Visit uh, was extended and now continues through March 24th. Jonathan, you have a, a pick this week. I do, I do. I want to talk about Mary Zimmerman's adaptation of The Magic Flute at the Goodman Theater, which also has been extended until March 24th and is selling out very quickly. This is, of course, the uh, opera by uh, Mozart and his, uh, his, his uh, librettist, uh, Emanuel Schikaneder, that was the last fully completed piece that uh, Mozart did before he died in 1791. And Mary Zimmerman has taken it. She has reduced it down to two hours, including intermission. She has taken out all the heavy stuff, the symbolic uh, uh, stuff, the quasi-religious stuff that's mostly in the second act uh, of, the, uh, of the original opera. And she's pared it down to its essential musical comedy form, which is what this was when it was originally written. It wasn't actually done in an opera house. Um, and there is dialogue to it. And it's a fantastic story and a sweet story. And Mary Zimmerman, who was famous for, for her classical adaptations, has done it respecting Mozart's music, respecting the story, but updating the, the libretto and the lyrics by Schikaneder, which were filled with jokes and puns, and she's uh, had some fun updating them a little bit, and it's all a lot. She's put the musical comedy back into the magic flute, and if you will, she's taken the opera house out of it. Is it the best 
singing and of Mozart you've ever heard? No, it is not. Is it faithful to the original? Well, partly yes, but not entirely. Is it fun? Is it a lovely introduction to Mozart and to opera for you if you've never been to an opera or your kids? The answer is yes, yes, yes. It is <laughs> colorful. It is imaginatively staged, and it's even done in a in a, in, a, in acknowledgement of of uh, you know 1790s staging conventions. It is just a sweetheart of a show, and I do recommend The Magic Flute by MacArthur Genius Grant recipient Mary Zimmerman, Zimmerman, who adapted it and directed it. They do it with um, a cast of ten and and five wonderful musicians. Well, David Cromer is also MacArthur Genius, so we have two (laughs) genius-directed shows this week. I I remember my joke about that was the hard thing about being a MacArthur Genius Grant winner, not that you or I have yet yet been acknowledged <laughs> as such because clearly or gary clearly there's an oversight happening here but you know that that giant light bulb they make you wear over your head for the rest of your life can be distracting in the theater for other patrons so really it's what, just as well <laughs> what is how did oscar wilde put put it that he has to live up to his blue china Yes. That is his famous blue china he had when he was a student. Well, at I, I, you know, I, I interviewed Mary Zimmerman years ago. Right, at, uh, it was when uh, I was living in the Bay Area. The Metamorphoses was touring, and I just mentioned that. And she said, "Yeah, Metamorphoses was the first show I did, which obviously went on to Broadway, and she won a Tony for that. But it was the first show she did after winning MacArthur." And she said, "My my deepest fear was that all the headlines on the reviews for Metamorphoses would read genius schmenius." <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we touched on two crowd pleasers. That's all for this week. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, welcome, Gary. Gary. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. A little over five years ago, the Terra Foundation for American Art provided an injection of resources to celebrate Chicago's legacy as a hub for art and design. The initiative called Art Design Chicago helped support 95 partner organizations and a full year of programming that included 46 new exhibits, 29 publications, and over 300 events. An estimated 2.5 million people engaged with those programs, and Choose Chicago estimated the project generated $55 million in economic impact for the city. A new iteration of Art Design Chicago launched last fall, though the majority of the programming will take place this year. Of course, a lot has changed in the short time period between the end of Art Design Chicago 2018 and now. The pandemic, the social justice reckoning that was born in 2020 have shifted views on the ways cultural institutions operate, the Terra Foundation has also changed. Its mission is the same, but the Chicago-based nonprofit has a new leader. Sharon Corwin took on the role of the foundation's president and CEO early in 2020, not too long after the organization announced plans for a second Art Design Chicago and before the pandemic erupted in March of that year. I caught up with Corwin at the Terra Foundation's River North neighborhood office to talk about the return of Art Design Chicago. The 2024 iteration of Art Design Chicago had already been announced when you started as president and CEO at the Terra Foundation. So when you started in this role, did you come in with a, a clear idea of what you wanted this version of the initiative to be? 
It was such an exciting moment because I came here in 2020 and Artside Chicago had just happened in 2018 and it allowed me an opportunity to really see the impact that the Terra Foundation can have in the city. And it was such a successful citywide initiative. And so when I came here, we began to think about the future iteration of not just Art Design Chicago, but the Terra Foundation in general. And we really began to refine and revise our mission and thinking about and really supporting expanded narratives of American art and new ways of engaging in the art history and the art practice that we support. So it's really the, the what of our work and the how of our work. So we began talking to the team here at the Terra Foundation early on in those moments about how some of those values and that mission could be reflected in Art Design Chicago. So it was um, just a wonderful example of, um, first, the team here at Terra really coming together around um, this new thinking, but also the partners we were already in dialogue with who were really already thinking about new ways of working across the city and already engaged in this type of network building and, um, and deepening their relationships with each other that has become a really important part of this iteration of Art Design Chicago. So uh, they've been meeting, our partners have been meeting since 2021 to form a learning community in which they, they talk about opportunities to co-generate programs, to share resources, and to offer each other feedback. So I think what I realized um, coming here in, um, in 2020 was, how collaborative the city already is as, a, as an arts city. So many cultural organizations, so many artists, but the real spirit of working together was already deeply built into this initiative. And it's something that we just continue to foster and build. So I remember back in 2018, there was a wide mission or directive. The hope was that these programs would celebrate Chicago's history uh, yeah. of art and design and its uh, legacy. Any philosophy change in, in that mission? No, I mean, I think one of the great things that Art Design Chicago does in this iteration that it did so successfully in the first one is really offer an opportunity for um, people to really understand their city better through art. And so the, um, the content is, some of it's different. We, we really have focused, uh, a number of our partner organizations are focusing on indigenous art, indigenous artists and partnerships here in the city. And so that's one content focus that we're really excited to see expanded in this iteration. And then the, the other real difference is just the, the time that our partners and our team at the Terra Foundation has put into the practice of planning. So this has been a multi-year planning that has brought together these organizations and these cultural leaders and these curators and educators and community activists to really talk about what um, and how to do the practice of, of art presentation, art interpretation, art engagement in the city, what that can look like. Obviously, a lot changed in 2020, and then things were foggy in 2021. Did that affect any of the planning? Gosh, COVID affected everything, didn't it? We were really in close dialogue with all of our partner institutions and heard from them that their timetables, we needed to be a little bit more flexible, which we were absolutely happy to be. And so what um, might have been a more concentrated version of Art Design Chicago has expanded in terms of the time frame. So we already have a number of exhibitions open 
in the city and then we'll continue to see exhibitions and public programs and events happening throughout the city through early 2025. As far as criteria for a project to be part of this, does it just have to be related to Chicago in some way? Yeah, I mean, we wanted to really take this as an opportunity to understand this city better through art and to connect this city through art. And so the, um, the city is very important to, to the story of Art Design Chicago itself. So having that engagement with and for the city was really fundamental to, um, to projects being included. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section on WDCB. I'm talking with Sharon Corwin, the president and CEO of the Terra Foundation for American Art. The Chicago-based nonprofit has now launched the second iteration of Art Design Chicago. So as far as programming, once the application window opens and you start getting responses, was it a matter of the applications dictating the direction of this, or did you have an idea of what you were looking for? Yeah, that's a great question. We really want to, we wanted to be, and I think we were in this initiative, responsive to the field and responsive to the city. But we also wanted to focus, as our mission does, on ways in which we can expand the narrative of American art to really support uh, diverse storytellers, to deepen our understanding of Chicago through the many practitioners that make up the incredible creative ecosystem here. And so that became one of the guiding foci for, um, for this project. And I think it was really achieved because uh, our partner institutions were already really thinking about ways in which they wanted to broaden the narratives that they're telling within their institutions. So it was just something that we were happy to continue to support. Will there be examples of institutions working together on projects together? I think the the examples of those connections is maybe a little bit more behind the scenes um, when we think about the learning community that was brought together in the planning. So they would meet with really quite regularity um, to offer each other feedback on their projects, to talk about best practices or to share resources. And so there was really a lot of, um, I kind of think of it as a citywide engagement in the how of the work we do. We often talk about the what of our work. And so there was a real focus through this multi-year planning process on the practices that one engages in, the methodologies that one engages in, in doing these kind of practices, um, these kind of projects. So community engagement, there were a lot of community advisory boards being assembled and brought together to inform projects. And that's just one example of the type of larger citywide collaboration that was happening, not just with institutions, but with communities and with artists themselves. And then I just looked at some of the numbers, so it'll be a little smaller in scope as far as exhibits? Um, I think uh, in terms of partners, I think we're around the same number. This iteration of Art Design Chicago involves 50 cultural partners, 35 exhibitions. We have hundreds of programs that will be happening over the next 14 months in 30 Chicago neighborhoods and surrounding suburbs. So it's really citywide. And there's, there's something for everyone. There's something probably in every single person's neighborhood here um, and just a range of exhibitions and programs to be shared with the public. Was uh, geographic diversity something that was important? Absolutely. We wanted to um, make sure we reached into all parts of Chicago and, um, and brought the stories that are happening in each of Chicago's um, neighborhoods 
into this initiative and the artists that are working there and um, the stories that they're telling. So I think um, with 30 neighborhoods represented, um, uh, hopefully um, people will see themselves represented in this initiative. We're here at the the beginning. Lots of optimism. Do you think about, is there like a, a measure of success for something like this? The opportunity to really just understand this city um, through its art making with um, greater complexity, greater um, nuance, greater diversity uh, through the exhibitions and programs that our partners are putting on is, um, it, I, I hope people will engage with it. I think of it as an opportunity to learn about art here and the, the practices that make Chicago so unique, but also to engage with it, um, to really engage with the programs that are being put on over these next months. Um, and the great thing is we're part of a larger, the Chicago Architecture Biennial is launching this month as well. And so it's really, I think, a vibrant and dynamic time for arts, architecture, and design here in the city, which is just renowned for its creative influence. And this is really early. Any thoughts? Could Art Design Chicago continue in the future? Yeah, I think at the moment we are not considering a third iteration, but we're very interested in what our, how we can continue to support the arts ecosystem, artists, and cultural institutions here in the city. So it's something that we're talking about actively um, with our partners in Chicago. It's this um, Art Design Chicago has presented a real opportunity to be in dialogue with so many of these 50 plus organizations and institutions that are doing the work of cultural production and presentation in the city. So we're, we're excited about what that future will be and how we can play a, a role in supporting it. Sharon, thanks so much. Yeah, what a pleasure. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for your interest. That's Sharon Corwin. She's the president and CEO of the Terra Foundation for American Art. The 2024 iteration of Art Design Chicago is underway with some new exhibits. The initiative continues for the next year plus. You can find more info at artdesignchicago.org. You're tuned into the arts section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm going to shine a light on a documentary that got lost in the shuffle a few years back when it came out. The film illuminated the remarkable true story behind a pioneering public television show dedicated exclusively to black culture. The series was titled Soul. It debuted on New York City's public television station WNET in 1968 and soon expanded to PBS affiliates around the country. The program was developed, produced, and hosted by Alice Hazlip. He was always looking for the edge and a way to really inhabit this new idea of blackness, a wider definition of what that was, as defined by the arts, as opposed to defined by society. This is Melissa Hazlip, Alice Hazlip's niece and the director of the documentary Mr. Soul. He always saw a better future and a better possibility for artists. Like he saw their higher selves. He saw them doing and being much more than they were. And so I think that that sort of genuine quality made him uniquely situated to have a show in which he could create a platform, a vehicle for African-American artistry, but also a platform for political expression and the fight for social justice. 
Ellis Hazlip was a true trailblazer. He created a weekly variety show focused solely on the black experience at a time when the television landscape was anything but diverse. Hazlip would regularly welcome luminaries such as James Baldwin, Nikki Giovanni, Stevie Wonder, Roberta Flack, Herbie Hancock. Those are just a handful of examples of the people that would come on Soul. But he also used his platform to raise the profiles of up-and-coming black artists and community leaders. Despite its success with black audiences, Soul only aired for five years and the series is sometimes omitted from discussions about pioneering black programming in the United States. This new documentary serves as an extremely timely reminder of the show's legacy. Mr. Soul made its world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival back in 2018 and is now available to stream on HBO Max. I caught up with the film's director, Melissa Hazlip, a few years back when Mr. Soul screened at the Chicago International Film Festival. We talked about her uncle's approach to curation, his steadfast resolve when it came to Soul's mission, and the inspiration for this documentary. Hazlip says she began working on the project in 2008. I had thought about it for a long time and I actually it was a little daunting to think about how to tell this story because it involves so many artists over a period of time. It's also the journey of a people and the journey of music and the beginning of public television and also the biography of the man, Ellis Hayslip. So when you layer the biography of the man and the biography of the show, that's really ambitious. So I remember thinking, how would we tell this story? But more importantly, when should we tell this story? And I realized that now is the time, especially even 10 years ago. Namely, I felt that, you know, many of the master makers of African-American culture were starting to leave us or decline or become more mature. And I was worried that no one was going to ask them to tell their stories, especially as it relates to the story of soul. So I began in earnest in 2008 to put together a treatment and to sort of gather information to figure out who's best to tell this story. And I decided to charge forward and start developing the concept. The tricky part is, you know, there's a lot of material there and it's not based on a, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning historical novel. So I had to kind of create what would be the substance of the script. So you have this personal connection to the subject matter. What was your relationship like with your Uncle Ellis? Were you aware growing up of his show and what it represented? He was my favorite uncle, and I happened to be really, really young when he was making the show, and he decided, even though he had his own apartment at 275 Fifth Avenue, to live with us because he loved being around uh, Ellis just loved being with the family, and he just adored Harold Hazlip and my dad, and I just felt so lucky to be in his presence. I didn't understand really who he was. I just knew that he was magical and that he brought all these wonderful people over all the time. Little did I know until later on that they were some of the people who he just shot on the television show. So it was James Earl Jones, you know, I was bouncing on his knee, or it was Clifton Davis pinching my cheek in Melba Moore, or I remember Novella Nelson because I've known her since I was a baby. She was his muse at the time, and so she was always over. And so it was sort of a movable feast of artists and food and late night, which was a perfect lure for a little girl <laughs> to get out of bed and defy her mother and run and say, Ellis is here, Uncle Ellis is here. But then as I grew older, I gained so much respect for him and started to realize his vast impact 
not only on the culture, but on many, many careers. And he took me under his wing and inspired me to be the artist that I feel that I've grown into today. So one of the things that I find so fascinating about this story is that it seems like Ellis didn't set out to be this pioneering television host. He he wasn't seeking fame. The stars aligned. What do you think it was about him that made him such a a good fit for this role of producing and, and hosting this brand new type of television show? Like you said, it was kind of like a brief harmonic convergence. There were so many elements that aligned with the stars at the time. He was a little bit of a fish out of water, as we portray in the film. He wasn't a host. He didn't have television experience. But he did have his fingers on the pulse of what was happening in the community. And he had an extensive theatrical background as a producer. So he knew what was happening on the streets. And he sort of straddled that line of being somewhat of a Pied Piper who drew artists to him and also just a pioneer in that he was trying to push the boundaries of what defined black art at the time. It's hard to sort of, you know, conceptualize that idea now looking back, but black dance, for example, wasn't considered high art. It hadn't been established yet. It was the beginning, you know, it was the nascence of Dance Theater of Harlem and Alvin Ailey's company. And so there was no precedent. But Ellis said, no, this is important. This is what's happening. And he was pushing choreographers like Alvin Ailey and Donald McHale. All these super talented people, these luminaries, come on, soul. We would be here for another half hour if I just was <laughs> reading off names, but Al Green, Toni Morrison early in her career, Max Roach, Sidney Poitier. What did you find out in your research about his approach to programming this show? Like, what was he interested in? And Because some of these talented people he was inviting on before they were huge names, did he have a knack for recognizing talent? Uh, was he just a consumer of culture and just ingrained in what was going on in the United States? I think a little bit of all of those aspects. I feel that he really was curating the culture, if we were to look at a more modern term for it, just like we curate maybe our Spotify lists or our call from the vast array of what's available to us now. But with Ellis, it was much more specific. I think he was an iconoclast in the way he juxtaposed artists and their their different disciplines in a way that you wouldn't expect. And let's listen to a clip from an archived episode of Soul. In this particular segment, you can hear Ellis Hazlip interviewing the late, great Bill Withers. I would like to see you record an album. I don't know if you'd call it live or what you'd say, but the rap that you do, you know, before a lot of your songs, the, the lead into them is, is sheer poetry. It really is beautiful. Oh, and uh, uh, what gave you the idea to present yourself that way? I mean, why did you feel it is necessary to talk before you? Nothing. Listen? You know, I went to here. I was. I had never been in the entertainment business before. All of a sudden, somebody says, "Go to work." The first live singing I ever did was in front of about 5,000 people in Chicago. And I found myself talking to them, you know. I mean, they're out there, you know. You just walk out and look at a whole bunch of folks, you know, and don't say nothing, man. You either got a grin or dance or something, and I can't dance. So uh, I just started talking to you. You know, here we are. You know, if I came here and I sat and I looked at you like this and I didn't say anything to you, you know. I like to relate to everybody out there, and uh, sometimes people don't want to hear you talk. They say, oh, shut up and play, you know. So you just shut up and play, you know. (laughs) He was always walking this sort of duality, 
So he loved the sacred and the profane. He would bring that together. You might see a Black Panther on the same show as a revered Black dentist in the community. Uh, for example, Stokely Carmichael might be on the same show as Stanley Nelson Sr., who was the father of Stanley Nelson, the, the documentarian, and the senior was actually a, a notable dentist. And um, just an unusual way of seeing the world and seeing the value of each individual, really, and what they could bring to the national consciousness and, the, and placing them on the national stage without question and encouragement. And that kind of curation is so important because it was ahead of its time. And we were living in a time that was so prescribed by you know, racism and inequality. And so to have someone who could see beyond that and beyond those limits was really remarkable. I imagine there's these great archives. So you have the, the video of Soul, and that had to be challenging picking what you wanted to, to use in the film. That was very challenging because it's really a bevy of undeniable talent, and you're getting to see them in, in their nascence, you know, in the top form, in the beginning of their careers. And it's remarkable to see it. It's heartbreakingly beautiful when you're seeing something that you know was un completely unselfconscious in the beginning because it was also the beginning of public television, the beginning of color television. Mm -hmm. So it was a new way of reimagining yourself and seeing the mirroring of the culture was happening for the first time for everyone to see in their living rooms. And so I think it's um, really spectacular that we had the ability to look at all of these tapes of soul that many of them were missing, but you know, out of 130 episodes, Channel 13 WNET, the original producing station, had 49, and then we were able to find at least 20 or 30 others from different sources. Okay. And we just combed through them, and then the way we did end up choosing was to be really economic with our storytelling. So we did have to leave a couple of prime clips out, and that was really hard. But it had to earn its way. That was the that was the deciding factor. Yeah. It had to earn its way into the story. Or it could never be gratuitous just because it was a wonderful right. clip or a wonderful performance. And that was heartbreaking. That was like Sophie's choice. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to decide, well, can I have two Al Green songs? <laughs> Is that even fair? <laughs> I'm a big Al Green fan. So I, I was like, too. I could watch this all day. Oh, yeah, my gosh. This is a song I'd like to say. I'm so tired of being alone. I'm so tired of all my own. Won't you help me, girl, just as soon as you can? One of the things that really came through to me as I watched Mr. Soul is what seems to be Ellis's refusal to compromise the show's mission, which was to shine a light on black culture. There was an integrity to his stance, I have to imagine, in the late 60s and early 70s, even though this was on public television and had received grant money to, to even start, there had to be pressure on him to change certain elements of the show. Absolutely, you couldn't have said it more accurately. In fact, there was pressure after every single year because they got the funding for the first year and literally had to get more funding to continue. And the letters actually began in the first year to try to prove that this show was valuable and, and desirable. So every year they had to fight to keep it on the air. It was really, really critical 
in the fifth year when they it was announced that they wouldn't receive any more funding. But just the notion that every year was a struggle and not a guarantee, it's really remarkable because when you see it, you think, well, that's a gold mine. Of course that should have been on television. <laughs> but yes, it was controversial as well because it was a new way of, as one of the artists says in the film, of reimagining ourselves as black people in this nation that had not been welcoming so far. So there were aspects of it that were radical or perceived as such that were not possibly as favorable um, reviews, you know, that would keep it on the air. Mm -hmm. So what's remarkable about the show that I like to uh, share is that it existed in spite of all of that. Mm -hmm. It was a triumph year after year. And even though it ends and it's very sad, we try not to end the film on a melancholy note because just the fact that it existed is a triumph, really. From those of us that kind of watch what happens to, in the entertainment world, mm -hmm. something can come in with this pure idea, yes. but then in order to stay alive, it might change in order to appease people. But yes, it feels like this didn't. You know, one of the things they asked him to do, we didn't go into it so much here, but it is substantiated in a lot of research and uh, I've done it, was that they asked him to integrate the show in the last season in order to move forward. And his response was, why should we integrate the show when we're already integrating the network? I mean, PBS is not a network. The notion that it was a black show on a very, in a very white space was already a coup. So we're already integrating television, the television landscape. Yeah. So he didn't feel like he should have to sacrifice the idea of the show, which was supposed to be an all-black show with all-black artists. And I think he wasn't willing to, to budge on that model, and that could have contributed to its demise as well. Melissa, thanks so much. Thank you. That was Melissa Hazlip. She's the director of the documentary Mr. Soul. It's currently available to stream on HBO Max. You can also rent it on several platforms. And you can find out more info about the film at MrSoulMovie.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Enjoy the extra day in February. Thanks for listening. But still I'm working at night for her, whoa, so she could